Uh, now I'd like to read um, today's Advent reading, which is from Isaiah, the prophet, chapter 52, verse 13, to chapter 53, verse 12, from the English Standard Version. And the words will be printed for you on the screen. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see. And that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. One Christmas, when I was in third or fourth grade, my dad made my brothers and I a gift. 
It was a printout that had our names along with their meanings and a Bible verse that went along with them. It was printed nicely in color. Hello, this was the 1980s. That was very impressive. (laughs) And mounted in a really nice picture frame. I think that was the first time I saw the meaning of my name. I go by Katie, but my full name is Catherine. And on this printout, I saw for the first time that my name meant pure. The verse my dad chose was Matthew 5.8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. At the time, I'm sure I just thought, oh, okay, cool, thanks, Dad, and moved on. (laughs) But as I got older and became more aware of just my own shortcomings, my own failures, I kind of struggled with my name, to be honest with you. Pure. How could I ever live up to that? How could I ever live up to my name? And at times, it kind of felt like my name was almost mocking me. After I fought with my mom, pure. When I went out looking for acceptance from boys after my dad left, pure. When I lied and called out sick for work on a Saturday because I wanted to sleep in, pure. What a joke. As followers of Christ, there are a lot of names and words that we wear that we're given as part of our identity. Child of God, holy, blameless, forgiven, loved, priest, ambassador. And I wonder if anyone else here in this room with me or anyone else joining us online this morning ever struggles with wearing those words. How can God keep loving me and calling me his child? Does God really want me as his child? I'm not worthy to be his ambassador, his representative. Look at me. Or maybe you've never even dared to pick up those names and wear them as your identity because you don't feel worthy of them. God couldn't want me. How could God forgive what I've done? What could I possibly do that would even matter to God? I think at the root of all of this doubt, all of this uncertainty, all this fear that God could never really accept us or that we're not really worthy to wear his name, I think at the root of all of that is this idea that our worthiness to be called God's child is somehow dependent on our behavior. That we have to somehow earn the forgiveness that Jesus gave us. At the root of this idea, I think we might have is Jesus maybe on the cross dying for our sins and with his last breath, he looks down at us like Tom Hanks' character in Saving Private Ryan and just whispers at us, earn this. Like Jesus died for us, but now it's up to us to prove that we were really worth the effort. And some of us take stock of our lives and we feel so burdened by the ways we have failed and we come to the conclusion that we have not earned the right to be called forgiven. Listen, as we approach Christmas, as we celebrate the coming of Jesus, I want to make absolutely sure that you celebrate Jesus this year knowing that your right to be called a child of God, your forgiveness, your welcome into God's family, none of that is at all dependent 
on you. There is nothing you can do to change God's invitation to be welcomed in. We've been in this series over the servant songs of Isaiah, and you just heard the last one that we're going to talk about read. These are four songs in the book of Isaiah that we read as foreshadowing Jesus. And this last servant song from Isaiah 52 and 53 tells us why Jesus came, why he chose to die. And we're going to see as we go through this song today that Jesus didn't die for our sins just because he hoped it would inspire us to live better lives to earn his sacrifice. Jesus didn't die for our sins because he had a hunch we were good kids and would make it worth the effort. Isaiah tells us, is a big idea, is that Jesus died for our sins because Jesus loves sinful people. He died for our sins because he loves sinful people. He loves sinners. Nothing makes Jesus happier than taking someone's sin from them, taking that weight they've been carrying, the shame they've been dying under. Jesus loves to take those awful burdens from people and give them in return forgiveness and love and grace. Nothing makes Jesus happier than handing out forgiveness to sinful people like Oprah handing out new cars. You get forgiveness. You get forgiveness. You all get forgiveness! So before you go home today, my hope is that you will be convinced of Jesus' love for you. You will be convinced that there is nothing you could do to be more or less worthy of his love. He just loves you. So let's dive into this servant song. This fourth servant song is made up of five different paragraphs that are arranged thematically with a mirroring technique called chiastic structure. A chiasm is named for the Greek letter chi that looks like our letter X. In chiastic structure, one idea is introduced and then reflected later to come back to the same thing. And there's usually kind of an uneven number so that there's one in the middle that doesn't have a reflection. And that, the middle, is where the author plants the big idea. The most important thing they have to say is right there in the middle. So as we talk through this song, we're heading toward the middle section that tells us what the servant did that was so impressive, so important. I also want to just quickly mention, as we talk through this servant song today, and as we've done this over the last few weeks, I interchangeably am going to speak about the servant and Jesus as the same person. Because as a Christian community, we believe this poem is foreshadowing Jesus. I just want to make you aware that if you're talking to a Jewish friend or a Jewish neighbor, Jewish theologians, Jewish scholars interpret this passage differently. I just mentioned that so that we can make sure that as we interact with our Jewish colleagues, our Jewish neighbors, that we come to Scripture with humility. Um, I think sometimes Christians can think we own these passages. (laughs) And I just want to make you aware that though I am speaking interchangeably because I believe they are foreshadowing Jesus, if you talk to a Jewish neighbor, they might have a different idea about what this is. I want to invite you to enter into that conversation with questions and curiosity instead of assuming that they're just missing something. Okay, I just wanted to mention that. But let's read now these first few verses of the servant song. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. 
So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. This first part of the servant song tells us that God's servant will act wisely. That means that he's going to accomplish his mission. He knows what he needs to do. He knows how to do it. He's going to make it happen. And verse 15 says that the result of that mission is that he will sprinkle many nations. Got it? What does that mean? (laughs) The verb sprinkle refers to what the priests did to cleanse people, to declare them forgiven. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would sprinkle blood on the altar as a symbol that the blood of a sacrificed animal was sufficient to work forgiveness for the people. And though priests were entrusted with the ritual of forgiveness for one nation, the nation of Israel, God's servant, what he's going to do is going to be so impactful that it works forgiveness for many nations, for the whole world. And this act of universal forgiveness will be so effective, so impressive, that it's going to render people, even kings, speechless. Listen, that Jesus took all the sin, all the guilt, all the uncleanliness from all humanity on itself, on himself, and that he did that for us, the guilty, the sinners, the unfaithful. That is astonishing. <laughs> and when we get that, when we begin to grasp the magnitude of what Jesus did, what can we say in response? This incredible act leaves us speechless. But tucked in the middle of this paragraph is a sentence that his appearance will be so awful that it will astonish people. Just like the people of Israel looked so terrible after they were carted away into Babylonian exile. So the servant is going to work forgiveness for the nations, but it isn't going to be pretty. And we see that in the New Testament, don't we? in the way Jesus is treated leading up to his crucifixion. The Savior worked the forgiveness of all mankind, but a crucified Savior looks crucified. And the song goes on to say more about how the appearance of the Savior will be surprising. Starting at 53.1, it says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not." We esteemed him not. Esteem is an accounting word. It's about measuring the value. That sentence means we looked at Jesus, at God in the flesh, and weighed him against what we thought a Savior should look like and found Jesus lacking. He did not have value to us compared to what we thought a Messiah should look like because he didn't come like we expected. He had no form or majesty or beauty. 
Jesus came into the world through the womb of an unwed teenager to the family of an unimportant carpenter. The one who would forgive the whole world, the long-awaited Savior, was born in a barn. Because no one would welcome this lowly family into their home. And the birth of the Messiah was not announced to King Herod, the ruler of the Jews. It was not announced to Caesar, the ruler of the Roman world, but to shepherds. More nobodies. This is not how I would have planned it. And his birth was just the first in a long list of ways that Jesus defied our expectations for a Messiah. The people closest to him missed it. His family thought they knew better than him how he should go about his ministry. John the Baptist, who was sent to prepare the way for him, ended up having some questions about if Jesus was actually the Messiah they had been waiting for. The woman at the well, she didn't know who she was talking to. There was no special glowing light around him everywhere he went. He was just a guy. Or so it seemed. And so we missed him. But this nothing special about him, man from Nazareth, did an amazing thing. And that's where the song picks back up in 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here we find out that Jesus, yes, was indeed a man of sorrows, but not his own. He was stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But here we read that it was not because of his own guilt. Somehow this God-man took on himself the burden of all of our sin. Somehow Jesus took the blame for our failure, the guilt for our misdeeds, as though in a long line we all walked past him and took the heavy weights of our sin that hung around our necks and put them on him. See, God can't just stand by and allow the damage that sin does to his creation. God loves the world. God loves us, and so he cannot allow sin to just go on. And so instead of destroying humans who keep choosing sin, he offered himself to take on all the sin, to put it all on his shoulders, and to carry it out of the world by killing it on the cross. Jesus did on the cross what we cannot do. He killed sin. And listen, the best theologians of Christianity have spent the last 2,000 years trying to figure out exactly how that happened. How in the world does Jesus ask God to put all our sin, all our guilt on him and let him die for it? It's remarkable. Somehow then, in return for our sin and our guilt, we got Jesus' righteousness. 
We didn't earn it. We can't make it happen ourselves, and we will never be able, this side of heaven, to achieve the sinless status that Jesus attributed to us at the cross. So we don't have to feel righteous. We don't have to feel worthy. I don't have to feel pure. We just are. It's just a fact. It is the reality of what Jesus did for us on the cross. He took all our sins. God has already laid all of our sin on Jesus. It is not on us anymore. The gospel of Jesus is not. If you just try hard enough, you can stop sinning. The gospel of Jesus is not, you can do it. Think positive. Believe in yourself. The gospel of Jesus is, friend, loved one, you are an absolute mess. Let Jesus have it. That's the gospel of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is how the writers of the New Testament understood what happened at the cross And it is the very center of our lives as Christians. Jesus took our sin and gave us his righteousness. And the next verses of this poem talk about how Jesus died, his countenance as he was killed, and the reaction from the people around him after his death. Picking up in verse 7, Isaiah 53 says, And he was oppressed and he was afflicted, Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. By human standards, Jesus' death was a miscarriage of justice. His trial was a sham. His accusers were dishonest. He was literally sinless, and yet he was condemned to a criminal's death. And not only was his whole trial unjust, he's God. In Matthew 26, he told his disciples that if he wanted to, he could just call out to God and 72,000 angels would appear to protect him. At any moment, Jesus could have ended the injustice being perpetrated against him. Instead, Jesus chose the way of the cross. He chose to allow himself to be abused. He chose to be lied about. He chose to be whipped and beaten and spit on. He chose to be crucified with criminals and buried in a borrowed tomb. He chose it. Isaiah says that he volunteered for the mission. Why? Why would he do that? Let's keep reading. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. These last verses of Isaiah 53 tell us why Jesus chose the way of the cross. The lowly birth of Jesus, the subversive ministry of Jesus, the excruciating death of Jesus, it didn't happen to him. These verses tell us that the life and death of Jesus was God's strategy all along. These verses tell us that God and Jesus were in on this together and that it was the plan they came up with. This reminds me, you guys know I love movies. This reminds me of the end of the Harry Potter movies when Harry goes to meet Voldemort in the woods and as Voldemort sees Harry approaching, he begins to laugh. He thinks he's won because he thinks he's going to get what he wants. He thinks his ideas, his scheming, brought Harry to the woods to be killed. And so he strikes the death blow. Avada Kedavra! And Harry dies. But then he finds out that Harry's death was Harry's plan. (laughs) Because Harry knew he had to die to destroy the Horcrux, you know, the piece of Voldemort's soul that had gotten stuck onto him years earlier, that had latched onto him, right? He had to die to kill that. So Voldemort kills Harry and thinks he's won. But really, Harry's won. And in the same way, the high priest thought he'd won. The people who wanted Jesus dead thought they'd won. They thought all of their scheming, all of their planning, all of their lying, all of their plotting is what led to the death of Jesus. But little did they know that before they were even born, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had a plan. And so although Jesus' death was excruciating, though it was painful, though it wasn't deserved, verse 11 says he will be satisfied after his death. The anguish Jesus endured was worth it to Jesus because he saw what would happen. He would make many to be counted righteousness, righteous. So Jesus endured the cross so that now he can look on with deepest satisfaction that ungodly, sinful, broken people like you and me can be called righteous. And why does he feel so satisfied? Well, we said at the beginning, Jesus loves sinful people. What amazing love Jesus came to earth in order to invite us to be free. He invites us to come to the cross and take off the heaviest things we're carrying, the deepest shame we can't forget, the worst things we've ever done, the sin habits we can't seem to shake. He invites us to take them all to the cross and let him take all the guilt for them, all the shame for them. He invites us to give them there and for God to take the payment for those things out of his account instead of ours. 
His blood flows out from the cross to us, inviting us to throw the things we can't forgive ourselves for into it and watch them be swept away in the river of grace. So this Advent season, do you struggle to believe the reality of what Jesus has done for you? Do you struggle to wear your new names? Child of God, holy, pure, loved. Are you struggling to accept the forgiveness that Jesus has already said is yours? Tell him that. Tell him that. Ask him to help you believe that what he says of you is true. You are forgiven. You are without guilt. You are righteous. Jesus loves to forgive sinful people. So if you're here this morning and you're aware of your sin, that's good news. Nothing makes Jesus happier than lifting the heavy weight of shame from the shoulders of sinners and setting them free to walk in new life. If you have never taken that step toward Jesus, if you've never held out your sin to him and asked him to forgive you and make you new, listen, that is the absolute best gift I have for you this Christmas. It is the best thing that will be offered to you this year. So today, as we take communion in a moment, Jesus is inviting you to his table to tell him that you want to lay down your sin, lay down your guilt, and take up his righteousness, his peace instead. If you've never done that before, tell him you want to. And then come receive the bread and the juice as a physical symbol of the reality that you have been forgiven in Jesus. Or maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, but you are still feeling guilty over your past. You are struggling to really accept the forgiveness that Jesus offers. Today, I hope you hear the invitation of Jesus to come and lay down that burden at his feet to accept it, to leave the weight of that past, of that sin, of that struggle at the cross. Jesus has already forgiven you. Yes, you're a mess. Let Jesus take it. Or maybe some of us this morning just need a reminder of how much we've been forgiven. Maybe we've been around our faith for a while and we forgot how much Jesus has forgiven us. Maybe some of us just need to be astounded again at the reality that Jesus took our shame and our guilt and gave us his righteousness and freedom and peace. As we take communion this morning together, maybe you just need to say thank you, thank you, thank you on your way up and back from the communion table. Harbor, Jesus died because he loves sinners. He loves us. He loves to make us new, to take our sin, to see us relieved of its terrible burden. So today, come and accept what Jesus is ready, willing, and eager to give. I'll be out in the cafe if you need prayer. Over the next few moments, the band is going to play. And during the songs, as you're ready, come up and receive communion. Let me pray. Jesus, you are amazing. The love you have for us is astounding. What you've done for us, there are not words to describe our gratitude. Thank you that you invite us in. Thank you that your love for us is unconditional. It's not dependent on anything we ever do. 
Thank you that you take our sin from us and set us free for a new way of life. This Christmas, that's what we celebrate. When we celebrate that you're coming, that's what we're celebrating. You didn't stay a baby, you grew up. You showed us how it is to live as one who loves. And you died to take the punishment, to take the guilt, to take the weight of our sin from us. So this morning we just say thank you. In your beautiful name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.